Well, hello everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 95. Thanks so much for joining me. This is a new format. Today's guest is going to be uh, Supriya Kar Dhaliwal. She'll be joining us at the top of the hour. The first hour, or first half hour, is always going to be uh, Poetry Spawn Live now. So we're combining the two shows we've done into one show. And um, we'll try to get to, um, you know, we'll try to share the poems that we published this week. We'll try to talk to the poets that we published at Poetry Spawn this week. Uh, then we'll also um, open up the open lines um, for any news-related poems for the first half an hour. We'll, we'll get to a few. Then we'll spend an hour with our guest poet of the week. And um, the guest this week, like I mentioned, is uh, Supriya Kar Dhaliwal. This is her book, The Yak Dilemma. So we'll be joining her in just a little bit. So a wonderfully imaginative book here by uh, Supriya. So she'll be here in about a, a half an hour. Uh, but before we begin the whole thing, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry because you're here on your Sunday morning or afternoon, however it may be. So please do click the like button and make sure you uh, share, tell your friends, uh, make sure you click the bell for notifications, do all that fun stuff to uh, help us out as we uh, try to spread poetry around the internet. Now, we have two poems uh, that we chose for Poets Respond this week. Um, and I'll, I'll read the first one, the Sunday poem, in a little bit. Uh, but the second poem is going to be on Tuesday. We'll have a preview of that. And um, this is uh, a familiar face to people on the Rattlecast. It's Richard Westheimer again. This is uh, two poems from Richard Westheimer in... Uh, in about a month span, so um, he's really hitting the hitting the ball out of the park here. Both these poems that we published, um, both Richard's that's forthcoming, and today's poem, "Look" by Marissa Glover, uh, made me tear up a little bit. I mean, if a poem, we always say, if a poem makes us laugh or cry, uh, we publish it, and uh, that it, it doesn't happen as much. Um, you know, you get a little desensitized over time, but uh, these two poems both made me a little misty. Um, similar topics, too, which may be uh, one of the reasons for that. But uh, let's call up first Richard Westheimer and do a preview of this poem um, that he has forthcoming on Tuesday. Let's call up Richard. Hey, Richard. Thanks so much for joining me. Let me get you sized right. Um, so how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a little later in the morning for me than it is for you. <laughs> I've I've had a chance for my uh, coffee to metabolize. Yeah, I'm still working on my coffee a little bit. I've got I've got like three sips down, so I need a little <laughs> bit more. Um, but usually, usually the uh, rattlecast can be at five o'clock uh, Pacific time, eight o'clock uh, Eastern. So it'll normally be in, in the evening, like usual. But it's only because uh, Supriya is in uh, India. So, um, so you have another poem in uh, Poets Respond coming up on Tuesday, Rich. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it was about? Um, sure. Um, for, first, I'll say uh, the poem was very problematic to write. Uh, the, 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 the poem is about the conflict in Israel, Palestine, Gaza, which, of course, is a difficult topic to begin with. And... Um, it's just the poem feels as conflicted to me and did as I was writing as 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 the conflict, which which might be why it worked, because it didn't feel like it worked when I sent it out. Uh, and I, I have to acknowledge the fact that it's coherent at all has to do with my wife read an early draft and slashed all of the things that were distracting from it and said, go back, work some more on it. So I really appreciate her her first reading. Um, and the writing started with a simple line, actually, that was in my notebook um, last week, which 
said, I after seeing some of the conflict erupt, and the simple line was, I can't stop being a Jew. Um, which writing that line reflected what I understand, like Frost's notion of getting yourself into legitimate danger. Just writing that line felt like his version of legitimate danger. Um, and then I saw this story about this four-year-old Palestinian girl, Sarah, um, and it just sort of created this sense of humanity in me. And I encourage folks to look at it or the New York Times display of all the children who were killed and just to remember this isn't news. Mm -hmm. It's it's people. Um, so that's that's basically what yeah, it's about. Let, let me ask you, Richard, have you um, always sort of been, been this conflicted about um, the situation in, in, in Palestine and Israel? Um, or is it sort of a, something that's evolved over the years? So to say this conflicted, I think I've always been conflicted about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, and the two things have happened in the last decade or so. One is that, that my daughter became very active in sort of a, uh, a profoundly Jewish group that was also profoundly um, contending with the occupation and trying to create a discussion among American Jews that was safer to have to, to to be critical of it and and I have to acknowledge her um, her work in mm -hmm. helping me feel safer with this conversation yeah that's what I was kind of getting at because I was wondering um, if you know you, you see that a lot more than you used to um, the American Jews being um, you know worried about the occupation and, and sort of protesting the state of Israel and, and what yeah. it's doing in in Gaza and in, the, in Palestine um, it, it, and I wonder if that's more of a changing awareness or of a changing, um, just a little bit more openness. Like, is it something that people always felt, but then are f more free to say because of the social pressures have changed? Or is it something that's sort of an evolving consciousness, do you think? I mean, I know it's hard uh, to speak for a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, but... yeah, I'll speak for everybody. <clears throat> yes. Uh, I, and I and I do think that there's been a younger generation of Jews who is, uh, uh, who have very systematically tried to open up the conversation. They know it's been happening. They had it with their parents. Their parents were, you know, like like I like I've been, you know, critical of 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 this. And what these younger people have done is systematically open up the conversation. And I think a lot of what you're seeing has to do with the work, the organizational work of younger organized Jews to make this conversation happen publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, well, why don't you go ahead and read this? I'll put it up on the screen for everybody at home and uh, go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay, will do. An American Jew fails to make sense of the carnage in Gaza. Four-year-old Sarah of Gaza can't feel her legs. Her brother can't forget the roof falling. Their father, Sahir, can't find a way to help either of them. And I can't stop crying any more than I can stop being a Jew, any more than I can forget the hunger that claws at my gut on a fast day, any more than I can stop a building from collapsing on a child in Gaza. Out my window, I see a red-winged blackbird harrying a vulture who can't stop being a vulture set upon by a blackbird, who can't help being a blackbird, harassing a vulture, who can't stop eyeing the mama bird's gaped mouth nestlings. 
I am neither vulture nor red wing, nor am I a Jew, at least according to Genesis 1.26, which says on the sixth day, God created humans, nothing about Palestinians and Jews. And line 21 didn't say on the fifth day, God created blackbirds and buzzards, just nonspecific winged things. Yet I see in the trees outside my window one biblically unspecified species that can't resist tormenting another. Making sense of the never-ending contest among our tribes by counting dead Gazans and Israelis is like trying to understand the Bible by counting its words, then dividing by the pieces of shrapnel lodged in little Sarah's spine or the tally of rockets that rained on Israel last week, or the count of families fearing eviction from Sheikh Jarrah, or the sum of all Arabs driven from their homes, or Jews from theirs, or the two fingers blackened and scarred, Sarah raises, smiling, as she says to the reporter, I am strong. But here we are, Smile and shrapnel, blackbird and buzzard, the fifth day and the sixth, and then the seventh, when God said, fuck it, you guys figure it out. We didn't. Which is ironic, because my tribe worked out a lot of shit, like welcome the stranger, and love thy neighbor, and don't covet, or murder, or lie about anyone. We did just fine, except for the times it felt like every goddamn person in the world wanted to burn us or drive us away. Yet as soon as we found refuge in a land already inhabited, built that place in our own image, we turned into a covetous sort. Tonight at Shabbat, my four-year-old grandson, Jude, dressed in lavender, twirls and tumbles about the room, sparks like stars in the candlelight. I recall a video of Sarah from the day before the bombs fell. She shows off her pink Eid dress. Her eyes smile deep chocolate brown like Jude's. I turn away and dream of a future. At a feast, I am arm in arm with Sahir as our two dancers swirl in a blur of scarves, purple and pink. Thanks so much for sharing that, Richard. Just uh, such a moving poem, both, uh, both the story itself of, of Sarah and then the, the con conflict that um, the internal conflict that comes out through uh, that poem. I, it just really it was really moving to me. I hope everybody appreciates it, too. Thanks so much for sharing it. Yeah, thank thank you, Tim. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Talk to you later. It was Richard Westheimer with uh, An American Jew Fails to Make Sense of the Carnage in Gaza. And that'll be Tuesday's poem at rattled.com. And um, <clears throat> now today's poem, um, unfortunately, Marissa Glover could not join us today. Uh, um, <clears throat> but uh, this was the poem, Look, and I'll read her note first. This is... Um, Today's poem at rattle.com. Another, um, another heartbreaking poem. There's, there's a couple of them today. Marissa Glover uh, says, I can't stop thinking about Aiden Leos, about his last words, about his mom, about simply driving to school and all the seemingly insignificant decisions made along the way. So much of this world makes no sense to me. 
And this poem kind of has that feeling of senselessness, talking in circles, living in circles, with each character always ending up in the same sad spot. It shouldn't be this way. And the story, I don't know if you caught it, was down in Orange County in um, in uh, Southern California. And... Um, uh, but but in in the sort of a road rage incident, um, this little boy was shot through the trunk of the car. Um, somebody who was like upset at the driver um, shot at the car and killed um, a little six year old boy that was driving to school. Um, it's a really heartbreaking story there. And um, you know, if you drive around Southern California, you can kind of see how it happens. There's a lot of rage. Especially, uh, you know, recently as the uh, traffic comes back to uh, the pre-COVID levels, uh, you know, we're not used to driving like crazed people anymore. And um, this is uh, this just heartbreaking poem by Marissa Glover, Look. And I'll just have to read this uh, for Marissa since she couldn't join us today. Look, the bullet was not meant for the boy. It was reflex, retaliation, a warning of bad things a man might do, can do, will do if you make him angry enough. The bullet was meant for the boy's mom, for being a bad driver, a bad woman, one who needs to learn some respect. Think of the birds she could have shot with his kind of ammunition. But the man missed the mark, as people full of rage often do. See the bird on the ground slowly picked apart by teeth. See the flecks gutted and stuffed for cabin walls, where they look in flight. See all the boys whose tummy hurts. See the moms whose fisted shirt cannot stop the bleeding. See all the moms whose tummy is not bleeding but hurting, not hurting but empty, but empty, but empty, not empty, but empty. Like the shell of a bird once feathered, once flying, now hollowed with nothing left but an unseeing socket in the middle of the street. And that, once again, was today's poem from Rattle.com, uh, Marissa Glover's poem, Look. Um, and now let's open up the, uh, open, or the, the Poetry Spawn Live lines a little bit. And um, let's see. Let's, we'll try to find poets who definitely have Poets Respond poems for the first half an hour. Um, and I don't know. We'll get to one or two every week. And then we will, uh, if, you, if you don't get in, you uh, have open lines later. Now, let me put up the numbers on the screen. Now, this is how you join. Um, first of all, just email your poem to openmic at rattle.com. That's openmic at rattle.com so I can show it on the str- screen. Uh, and then send me a chat message over Skype to rattle poetry, all one word. That's rattle poetry, all one word. And uh, that will put you on the call list. Uh, over the phone, call in 818-850-7727. Let it ring a couple times, then hang up, and I will call you back when the time is right. So let's go to uh, a caller, and um, let's see. Well, Bill Friedman is here, and he has, um, I think, a poem responding to the supermoon. Sort of change the, lighten up the subject matter a little bit. Uh, let me see. Yeah, when Friedman... Yeah, here we go. So this is Inflated Moon. We'll call up uh, Bill Friedman right now. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? Okay, fine. Thank you. Not so bad. Good weather. Peace. No no shells falling. No bombs falling. Well, that that's good to hear. Very good to you hear. Bet. 
Yeah. Um, what, so what poem do you have for us? You had uh, something, Inflated Moon, I have. Tell us right. a little bit about what it's about. Okay, yeah. Well, the, uh, there's something called the supermoon that appears in the sky, I think, once every year, but maybe less frequently, I'm not sure. And it's, uh, for some reason, 7% larger and 15% brighter than the normal full moon. Uh, because of the atmospherics or its position or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the uh, the elliptical orbit. It's a, a closer pass than uh, than it usually uh, is. So it's I don't know how many miles, but it's a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bigger just because it's a little closer. Uh-huh. And uh, up here in the mountains where I live, it, it's so bright that it, you could read a book by the moonlight. <laughs> it's it's wow. kind of impressive. Wow! Yeah, it's really awesome. It really is. And I remember sitting in sitting in my car, watching it, looking at it. I think this was a couple of years ago, and just being awed, just being astonished that this thing is uh, really an imposing looking object in the sky. It looks menacing and beautiful all at once, like some women. <laughs> Okay, so uh, why don't you read this poem? This is Inflated Moon. Go ahead, whenever you're ready, I'll put it up on screen. Okay. So, okay. Inflated Moon. I'm bowled over when the moon, lower than it should be, is something more, bigger than you've ever seen it. Must have grown over day somehow, large as Earth at least, maybe Saturn and watching hangs its funhouse mirror face over the trees and rooftops like the superhero's clownish nemesis back for another fiendish try. While you were brushing your teeth, downing your oatmeal, working on a busted pipe or manuscript, eyeing the woman who just shouldn't look and dress like that, walking past your desk or manhole, knowing the ache as always, washing it down again with coffee and a tuna melt for lunch, a tolerably marinated slab of salmon with your wife and sons, seven, nine, and 12 for dinner, and being annoyed, content, and finally a little grateful. You had no idea the moon was crouching furtively behind an arras of late summer light, growing, pumping itself up like an air mattress, mumbling some unpronounceable 20-letter word backwards or reciting seven times an eerie cryptic formula that inflates it 10 times its normal size, ready for night. Makes you realize, not only do you hurt the one you love, you knew that, but the one you love and thought loved you the one whose middle full and quarter name is love, the moon for heaven's sake, could turn on you, threaten with its cycloptic mass to pull the Atlantic over the entire eastern seaboard like Montana over a newborn chick and drown us all. Or if not, just hang there, flashing its outsized anguished grimace as though this time, not sweetness, strength, but all Earth's long accumulated pain and insult had rolled into a cratered ball that would barrel any minute through that flimsy line of half-lit high-rise buildings and flatten everything to where you're sitting in your parked car, shaking, gawking. Also, how magnificent fear 
if you can just get hold of it, if you're blessed with a little time, a life to stare at death and look away can be. Excellent poem. And that was William Friedman with Inflated Moon. Thanks so much for sharing that, Bill. Thank you, Tim. Thanks a lot. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. William Friedman with Inflated Moon. Let's see. We have uh, eight minutes till we go to uh, this week's guest. I think maybe that'll be it for the... For the callers right now, and then, uh, but if you'd like to join in, please do join in at the uh, second hour of the show. Um, same way as always, we'll get to a whole bunch of other people, uh, whoever's around then. Um, I wanted to share, though, it's the seventh anniversary of uh, Poets Respond Live, and um, it started out, I'll tell you how it started. Um, you know, June 1st was the first, June 1st, 2014 was the first time that we uh, published a Poets Respond live poem. And um, it was in response, actually, to, I don't know if you remember, um, there was a mass shooting, Elliot Roger, at uh, UC Santa Barbara. Um, you know, killed a whole bunch of people. Uh, uh, what do they call him? A, um, I can't remember what the word is for those uh, hateful, misogynistic uh, people. Um, but Elliot Roger's... Um, had a long YouTube manifesto that he published. And uh, Seth Abramson um, wrote a remix using the last words of Elliot Rogers and po- put it on the Huffington Post. This was, um, here, I'll put that on screen right now. This was uh, the last words of mass murderer Elliot Rogers remixed into poetry. Um, Seth believes in a, a kind of metamodernism, is what he calls it, which is where is is sort of uh, using a lot of found poetry and remixing to change the context. He, he's one of those experimental type poets, so he's gone on to do a lot more political stuff lately. But um, this was uh, what he did with Elliot Rogers' um, last words. Um, he took the transcript and and sort of remixed it to say something a little different. And um, I just thought when I read this, I mean, you know, you know, bless Seth, Seth Abramson. He's a, he's a good, great guy. Um, interesting person, too. But um, I just thought that poetry should be doing a better job of um, being poetry in, in the public than that. You know, it, it made me think of what uh, poetry could do versus, um, you know, how, how little it applies to, to current events and in the news and the way we think about things immediately. Because the problem with poetry is usually you publish something and it takes months and months to um, have it appear anywhere. And that's the regular publication cycle. And so you can't have, have poetry responding to current events. And so that day, which was May, May 25th, 2014, I think the next day it was, um, I put up a call on Submittable, which we just finally joined, and um, said, hey, if anybody has any poems about current events, uh, please share them. We'll publish one on Sunday. And that's how Poet Response started. And the first poem um, ended up being June 1st, 2014. This was Tria Wood, and it relates to um, Elliot Rogers. Um, after, um, after these events, there was a, a Yes All Women, which was sort of the precursor to Me Too, was trending on Twitter. It was a big Twitter conversation that, that people ha- were having. Um, uh, yes All Women um, are victims of, of um, this kind of misogyny. And... This was a poem that we published, Instructions, by Tria Wood. I'll put it on the screen and uh, and let Tria read it. Here we go. Instructions. Check your front porch for potential attackers before you open the door for any reason. Check your backyard for potential attackers before you open the door to let the dog out. 
Check your front porch for potential attackers before you open the door to go to your car. Lock and unlock all doors quickly before an attacker has a chance to get you while you're facing the door. Check the path from your front door to your car for potential attackers before walking toward your car. Walk toward your car while checking the yard, your neighbor's yards, and the street for potential attackers. As you walk, keep at least one key poked through your fist so that you can punch an attacker with it. Check under your car, around your car, and in your back seat for potential attackers before you get too close to it. Lock the car doors as soon as you get into your car. Park as close as possible to the office, the store, the gym, so he'll have less chance to attack. Park in a well-lit area so he'll be less likely to attack. Park at the end of the driveway nearest the street so that he can't block your car in. Park at the end of the driveway closest to your front door so that you can get from the car to a presumably safe space as quickly as possible. Set booby traps at all doors and ground floor windows, even if you feel foolish doing so. Keep the porch lights on front and back at night so that others can see if someone's trying to get in. Hope they realize that the person trying to get in is not your husband your date, your boyfriend, your gay friend, your brother, your father, your uncle, your cousin, your handyman, your landlord, or anyone else who might have a legitimate purpose for being there. Know that it could be, has been for others, a husband, a date, a boyfriend, a gay friend, a brother, a father, an uncle, a cousin, a handyman, a landlord, or anyone else who might seem to have had a legitimate purpose for being there. Take self-defense classes, because you hope to be able to fight off any of the above, or anyone else. If anyone attacks you, yell FIRE, because people will come running to help put out a fire. Change your habits and paths frequently, so that you become harder to track. Don't take any drinks that haven't been poured in your presence. Don't ever stop looking at your drink. Scrutinize your wardrobe and second-guess the fact that you wear makeup. Scrutinize your last few Facebook posts, tweets, and email messages to see whether they could be construed to make you seem insane, prone to lying, or promiscuous. When someone arouses your suspicion, respond politely. Lighten up. Smile. Realize it's just a joke. Get a sense of humor. Who do you think you are, you fucking bitch? You bitch. You ugly bitch, you fat, ugly bitch cunt, you fat, ugly bitch cunt who needs to be fucked, you fat, ugly bitch cunt who needs a fat dick to shut her up, you bitch cunt so fat and ugly you can't even get raped. And that was uh, Tria Wood with the very first Poets Respond poem ever published, Instructions, after um, the Yes All Women hashtag and the conversation that surrounded that. I still remember that line... I, I never heard this before, but if anyone attacks you, yell fire because people will come running to help put out a fire. I mean, what a line, what a thought, what a world where that's the case, uh, where fire is something better to yell. It's a powerful poem by Tria. What I should have warned everybody about the language, uh, maybe, but, um, you know, turn down your, <laughs> turn down your, uh, your thing if you have kids around or something like that. But, uh, you know, poetry uses all sorts of language, and that was a very, very powerful poem by Tria Wood. Um, now we're going to... Um, take a quick break, and we'll uh, call up um, Supriya Kaur Dhaliwal, today's guest, and uh, 
we'll be back in just a moment. Uh, and then after an hour, we'll go back to the open lines. And anybody who would like to share poems uh, can share poems uh, using the open line email address and phone number and Skype, whatever you'd prefer. But for now, let us uh, let me call up Supriya, and I will be right We're back uh, with Supriya Kar Dhaliwal on the line. Um, Supriya had a poem in uh, Rattle Number 70, this winter's issue. Uh, Supriya was born in the Himalayan town of uh, Palampur, India. She studied at St. Bede's College, Trinity College in Dublin, Queen's University in Belfast. In 2018, she was one of the 12 poets selected for Poetry Ireland's introduction series. She's the 2021 Charles Wallace India Trust Fellow at the University of Kent. And her newest book, I'll put it on the screen right now, or her first book, I should say, is uh, right here. This is The Yak Dilemma, a beautifully produced and very interesting book uh, by Makina Books right here. And uh, here she is, Supriya Kar Dhaliwal. Hello, Supriya. So do you want to start us out with a, uh, a poem? Yeah, I will actually read the opening poem in the book, Meet Me in the Morning on No Man's Land. Okay. Meet me in the morning on no man's land, where there are no magpies, no ravens, no candles, no kettles, no cups, no sauces, no sun, no moon, no light, no darkness. Yet it is morning, but mornings on no man's land are different from the casual mornings we wake up to. Meet me in the morning where heads float and so do our hearts, where there is no gravity and the only thing that keeps us grounded is the fact that we are together and it is that time of the morning. Meet me in the morning when I will whisper these floating words into your ears, words that will float in the air but you will float to catch them and I will end up chasing you, floating like those bubbles in the beer we drank last night. Meet me in the morning on no man's land where skins lose their color, where we are not white nor brown or black, but just the shade of our most loved color. I will be lilac and you can be that shade of yellow you like. Everyone will qualify to be a person of color. Meet me in the morning and come as the image of an image I have of you, hand over hand, knee over knee. In that bleeding memory, our bodies are countries we trespass to walk from yes to yes. You convince me if we can substitute an ampersand for a comma, then it belongs there. Meet me in the morning on no man's land. We will create a daisy chain of ampersands on no man's land. Thank you. And that was Meet Me in the Morning on No Man's Land, the opening poem from The Yak Dilemma. Um, and it's a great sort of setup to the themes in the book um, and, and the way you go about um, approaching those themes. Um, it's a very experimental sort of style. It's a very free-flowing, um, a lot of illusions, a lot of um, playing with text and visual, um, you know, how the poems look on the page. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about, um, you know, what that what that no man's land means to you, because it seems like that is so central to um, the concept of the book. Like that's sort of the place the book feels like to me reading it, a, um, a sort of search for home and maybe the no man's land. I mean, and not, not to project too far into what you're trying to do, but the no man's land feels like sort of the giving up of the search for it and like accepting of the transience of home or something like that. Um, I don't know. How, how do you conceive of that? And, and what were your sort of, what were you obsessed with while writing the book? Um, 
great question. There's a lot to unwrap there. Um, no man's land. I feel like, especially in reference to this poem, no man's land can mean different things at different points, considering how we are living politically, how we are living socially at different times of, you know, of, of whatever's going on. Like, you know, when I wrote that poem, I was I was living between Ireland and Belgium and Brexit was talk of the town. And if I had to write the same poem, if I had to rewrite the same poem in 2021, I think I would place it in the context of the pandemic and whatever is going on, you know, whatever politically goes on or socially goes on, it impacts a lot. It has a great impact on our writing. And I feel like in this case, in this poem, I feel like I'm placing all the anxieties of identity, home, exile in no man's land. And I'm placing them in one place that cannot be home so that I can talk about them. And that place for me, there is no man's land. And I think I think this this is a very important poem uh, for the Yak Dilemma because I think after I wrote it, I, it was much clearer to me what I was trying to do. And what I was obsessed with was while writing the Yak Dilemma is definitely homes, but not just my homes, other people's home as well. What home means to other people, what home means to people I spend my daily lives with, what home means to people whose work I connect with, like houses of famous writers and artists, all that was on my mind. And I think I wanted to create a journey in which I was meeting different homes at different points. And I think that was very important to me. Yeah. Um- and, and you've traveled so much. I mean, you've been, um, and right now you're in your hometown of um, yeah. Palampur, India, which is like for right at the base of the Himalayas there in northern India. But you've been through um, poems in this book, at least, you've been through Cairo. Um, you, you studied in Ireland. Um, do you think that, that your travels have anything to do with, with poetry? Like, is there a reason that, that you are, are traveling all over the world? Um, and does that have anything to do with, with what you're trying to do in, in a poem? Um, so I think, um, uh, I say this a lot, but I think poetry has made travel possible for me. I think the first time I left my country on my own was to attend a poetry conference. And when I went to uh, Cairo, my prime motive was to read some poems there and like talk to poets. And when I've been studying in Ireland, I feel like I've been studying poetry there and, you know, connecting with the poetry of uh, the poets who wrote there specifically, who wrote specifically in Dublin or Belfast. So I think like, I feel like poetry helps me think in different ways. Even when I'm living my real life, poetry plays a crucial role. Uh, it helps me navigate through life better. Mm-hmm. That's how I yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you remember um, how you started writing poetry? Was it at a very early age? Um, did you find a poem that that sort of inspired you to participate in it? Um, how was uh, how did how did you fall into poetry in the first place? So I I I found poetry quite early on in my life, and I think I was just doing it at the back of my school notebooks, just because and like hiding it because. I, I didn't know anyone who did that sort of thing. And yeah, I didn't know I could like do it for the rest of my life or if that was something I would like to do when I'm older. I had no idea back then, but yeah, I, I started writing quite young and 
I used to spend a lot of time with books as a kid. So I think poetry was just a, just the right medium for me. And yeah, I've written a lot since, but I think I seriously, I think I was in high school and uh, I got a poem of mine published in a newspaper and they used to run a column for poems by school and college kids. It's, it didn't no longer run it, but back in the day it was like, I used to read it every week religiously. And I really want when I was like writing all these poems at the back of my notebooks and like, sort of like, didn't, and I didn't know what I'm doing, but I really wanted to see my work there. So I just sent them, I had to post it. I remember I, my dad posted it for me. So like, like, yes, yeah, send, send them a poem. And I don't even know what was like, how, how long I would have had to wait for it to hear back on decision or anything like that. But I never heard back from the newspaper, but one day it was just in the paper. <laughs> so yeah, I was like, I think that was sort of the affirmation that made all the things that happen in the future possible for me. And I think it was the right motivation because I think when you are that age, it really matters. Like if you're doing something and you're encouraged to do that, you want to do more of that. And um, yeah, so that's how do you, do you it remember all anything? Began. Do you remember anything about the poem? Uh, what it was about? Because, yeah, I do remember it. I, I had titled it Hope. But the newspaper changed it to power of hope. That's all I remember. And it rhymed. It really rhymed. <laughs> so, yeah. Very cool. Well, uh, let's hear a couple more poems. Um, what do you want to read next? Uh, I think I will read a couple of poems from the first sections. The book is in four sections. And I will now read um, No One Wants to Think of Marigolds in September. It's on page 16. Um, the poem sort of takes place in London. No one wants to think of marigolds in September. Most passengers who alighted from the train walked into the other direction as I sheltered myself from the rain and the hullabaloo of the pre-autumnal madness, the pumpkin spice pleasures in Starbucks, the squawking of birds preparing for winter migration and the busker seeking validation for his terrible cover of Bowie's space oddity. Near the red light at the intersection with Moorgate Street, a young man handed me a flyer for two-for-one cocktails in a nearby pub, which was once called the Swan and Hoop, once upon a time where Keats was born. These immortal poets are unthinkable in London rain, except in the vicinity of the houses that mark their birth or death where their pain and delight become products of our imagination. While I got leered by a flyer advertising day drinking with Keats's coast, somebody tripped over a bed of soggy marigold petals, certain that they offered no sense of harm. It was September, after all, when flowers, even the ones without a murky past like lifeless nomads, belong only to the ground. And that was a No One Wants to Think of Marigolds in September from the Yak Dilemma. Um, that, that sort of brings up something I was wondering about. Like, what brought you to Ireland? And, and what was it that, that drew you to um, um, the poetry that, that you're drawn to? Um, I think the journey began when I was, uh, when I was thinking of how, what to do after studying English literature at college. I, I think one of the... Uh, uh, one of the modules that I enjoyed the most was um, Irish literature, and I think I read a lot of Beckett as a final year college student, and sort of was like, well, and sort of was like tracing what Beckett did in his life. And Beckett 
was born in Ireland, went to Trinity College, Dublin, and all those things. So, yeah, I just like sort of got drifted into what was happening there, and I was trying to follow it all online. But it was like really not that complicated. I I thought that I would like to study more of this, so I applied to this program at Trinity College, Dublin, which was a postgraduate program in Irish writing, and I got accepted and just like came to Dublin and then leave for a few years. That was all. <laughs> And so how long, how long did you uh, li live in Ireland? Um, like three to four years. Mm -hmm. um, well, do you want to read another poem? Yeah, I will read the poem on page 18. It's called Arabic Lessons. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Wa alaikum assalam, and peace be upon you too. We were ten strangers scattered in a seminar room in a university in Belfast. Our teacher asked us, why were we there? I said I grew up in India around people who spoke Urdu fluently and thought I might be able to pick up Arabic quickly. You know, it is that sort of thing. I want to read Mahmoud Darvish's poetry in his mother tongue and live in Beirut, Cairo, Kuwait without having to bargain for the chandeliers or dates, without letting anyone know I'm a foreigner. So you're not a journalist. No, I'm a poet. How long have you lived in Northern Ireland? A few months. He laughed. For 10 weeks, 10 of us sat once a week in the same seminar room, waiting for Arabic to come to us naturally. Masalama, goodbye. Nothing came more naturally than the phrase forbidding farewell, our minds ready to depart wherever we had come from. Masalama. That was Arabic lessons from, uh, from the Yak Dilemma. Um, if anybody has any questions, I should say, um, please do leave them in the chat windows on either Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass them along to Supriya. Um, Supriya, can you talk a little bit about what your, um, uh, how you approach a poem? Because um, you do have a a style that's very free and, and moving from concept to concept. I think you you have a, a sense of trust that the reader will follow along, um, you know, and, a, and a, a willingness to sort of depart from narrative and, and sort of take leaps in different directions. Um, how do you approach writing a poem in that in that way? Um, um, yeah, so I think when I'm reading a poem, like I'm waiting for it to talk to me and at different points when I'm reading it, at diff on different occasions, it could speak to me in different ways. And while I'm writing a poem, I feel like I feel like there are two ways of going about it. One, sometimes there's something in my head that I really want to get out of. So uh, I do a lot of note taking, I make a lot of lists. And that's how I approach the process of writing poems. And sometimes it really is like when I have enough lists ready, I have a poem ready. And yeah, that's uh, that's one way of doing it. But sometimes if I mostly when I do it in one go, that is when I think of, is the reader trusting me regarding what I'm doing? Or can I trust the reader here regarding what I'm trying to do? And it's, it's sort of like sitting in a room with a lot of windows and leaving all those windows open and just like seeing what happens to the things inside the room. Or maybe like, thinking of praying and trying to find a gender neutral God or something mm -hmm. like not, not being very successful at doing so. so. <laughs> well, those are great metaphors. It's really interesting that you mentioned um, writing from lists because I, I hadn't really, we hadn't counted a poet who, who does that. And, and then just last week, Karen McCadden 
was the guest. And she was talking about writing from lists too. So, so now I'm kind of more curious about this list as a generative process. So, so she, she said she would have, um, just sort of pick out words that she wants to include in the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the kind of thing that you do? How do you like form the list that will be, you'll turn into a poem? I think it's seldom the words to me, but it's more like somebody, someone said something, some uh, somebody said to me or something I saw or something I read somewhere or something that I read somewhere that made me think of something. And like, it's just like an accumulation of a lot of thoughts, but I think it's so different during the pandemic now, but when I used to go about my day and I was not always in the lockdown, I feel like it was it was more like a record of everything that I'm trying to do through the day. So, yeah, I feel like, I, I feel like when I was like quite young, I can't quite remember who said this to me, but I am. Um, I think I was in Trinity when someone said this to me. I think I had gone to a talk by one of those really renowned professors, and he said that to become a writer, you just need one thing. You need to like buy a diary, which is not longer than the size of your hand. And you just like always need to write in it whenever something occurs to you. And I didn't do that. I tried to do that, but I don't always do that. But I think the process of list taking is very similar to that. Mm-hmm. And I might not always write it down in my diary, but you know, I might be like taking a note on you know, my phone or like might be scribbling it on the bookmark and the book I'm reading or whatever situation I'm in. Do you, that's interesting. Do you think that um, the reason that works has more to do with um, noticing? You know, like if, you're, if you're going to be writing stuff down in a diary and making lists of things throughout the day, you, you pay more attention to what you're doing throughout the day, right? Mm-hmm. Or do you think that, that it's, um, it's just that you remember what you noticed already? Like, do you think, does it, has, does it change your perception to know that you will be writing a poem possibly about whatever you encounter at any moment? I think so. And I think like that sort of practice also keeps you grounded in the real world because otherwise it is too easy to get driven away by your feelings while you're writing something personal or something that matters to you. That's why you're writing it. So yeah, I think that is important. Well, uh, let's hear another poem. What do you want to read next? Um, I will read the title poem, The Yak Dilemma. The Yak Dilemma. While learning what different animals were supposed to be called, the first animal I learned to name was a yak. My nanny, whom I am told was from Chamba, took the yak business quite seriously. She made sure I knew we were no flatlanders. Whenever I draw a line on the paper, I think of her telling me that this line is River Ravi, around which several yaks graze. Somewhere between learning about yak milk and yak wool, today I stand in a labyrinth of questions. In a poetry workshop in a country with no yaks, I am told yaks can only be found in Nepal. In another Tiha setting in the same country, I am told a yak is a raccoon. Another human contradicts this notion and adds that a yak is something like a furry cow, often related to the Sherpas and probably Tibet. I put kibosh on the discussion before another human tries to venture in with his own theory of Himalayas and yak meat. Like the snowflakes from colorless skies that fall like the bullets ricocheting in a war zone, kissing February's hopeless crowns, I often wonder, where have I truly come to? 
And that was uh, the title poem, The Yak Dilemma. Um, I, and I love the, 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 you have flatlanders, that you talk about flatlanders in your town, because we're up in the mountains too. And, um, yeah. and every time there's some kind of reason for the flatlanders to come, you know, everybody says, the flatlanders are coming, hide, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, they're always just up to, up to no good because they don't understand uh, a mountain life. <laughs> <laughs> at all yeah so i yeah. guess it's the there same. was always that caught to me yeah um do, do you feel um um i don't know like like sharing um your perspective from that area is a part of what you're doing too um you know is is home is sharing home with the rest of us part of of your your goals as a writer to some extent yes but also i'm very cautious of the fact that I'm still learning what life here is like because I left here when I was quite young and uh, ever since I came home last year um, uh, after the pandemic uh, hit our lives, I think this is the longest I've ever been home. So I think I'm also learning how to be home at my own home while I'm writing about home because I've never been home for that long. And yeah, so to some extent, yes, I think. Um, and so, so one of the things that, that stands out in this book, although none of the poems, um, have, have, or only the first poem has been sort of in, in the style of, um, the block, the block that you do, but there are a few poems mm -hmm. in that style where the, where the way that it's laid out on the page really matters. And there's some long poems, um, that, that the, the book turns sideways, uh, mm -hmm. to make sure you fit the length of the line in, um, there are a lot of things like that going on throughout the book. There's also, um, I noticed that the poems always um, start on the on the left hand side of the page, so that they mm -hmm. always appear, um, and you never have to turn the page to get to the next poem, um, except mm -hmm. for the you know longer than two page poems. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what do you think uh, about the layout of a poem? How much aware, how aware of you or of that are you as you're writing the poem? How it's going to look? Um, and, and was your was this a lot of your design laying the book out this way? Um, was that something that you were after, or was it more the press? Uh, so I think it matters a lot to me how a poem sits on a page and I do spend a lot of time thinking how can I do it the best and when I'm doing that block sort of thing it's it's sort of it's more like I'm approaching the poem as a concrete text well uh, there are movements in the book when there are a lot of gaps between different uh, different movements in a same line or even the same stanza and I feel like how I approach time when I'm writing a poem is very important to me and when I'm uh, writing a poem in the present time I am talking of something from the past or maybe I'm willing to talk something from the future it's very important for me how I place that past and future in something that I'm writing in the present so I think those get gaps help me fragment the memories that I am willing to place in the poem and also different movements from different times that are that, that, whatever's like going on go, that's going on there and each new poem starting on the left uh, side of the page I think that's like more uh, more of like a design approach to mm -hmm. the book because like when we were trying to place different poems in the book I think that's how it worked the best without jumbling up the whole thing because each poem looks so different in the book it was very important for me not to overwhelm the reader by just looking at it, like imagine like if I see this book in a bookshop and each one looks so different from each other, I would be like, why does it look 
the way it looks like? That would be my first question. So I was very aware of the fact that the book is loaded with such movements. So it was very important for me and my designer and my publisher to place it in such a way that it's inviting for the reader and the reader doesn't get blocked away when they kind of see it at first. Yeah, in a, in, in a similar sort of way, what was the the process of, of putting the cover art together? Um, and, and there's this, um, I'll put it on the screen for everybody to see. Um, the cover art is this sort of map-like, um, and I'm not sure what it is. It's very interesting, though. Um, what is that, and, and how did you choose that as the cover? And the, the colors make it really pop, too. I, it's a great cover design. Um, but at first, I thought it might be India on its side, but then the Sri Lanka would be in the wrong place. So that wasn't right. And then I looked to see if it was, um, <laughs> if it was uh, your home state, maybe, but that wasn't it. And um, I don't know. So I couldn't figure out what the, uh, what the cover actually was, but it's so striking. Um, so how did you choose the cover and, and what, what is it? So when my publisher sent the manuscript to a designer first, um, I think the one of the recurring themes was maps and making a map of your own while you know studying uh, studying all studying for whatever is going on there. So maps were integral, and we were like, yeah, it's a the the, the whole structure of the book is a lot like creating a map of your own. So the designer did create a map of his own. So this is actually a hybrid of India and Ireland's map. Ah, okay. I'm trying to get a like, you know, like on the front back, it's like different. But with the colors, I feel like uh, uh, this was our second choice, the current color scheme of the book, but I think it's better than our first choice. So whatever happened, it happened for good. But I think the colors colors were so important. I think a few days ago, um, someone asked uh, uh, the designer of the book if the yellow on the cover is actually the yellow in Mimi in the Morning on No Man's Land. I, I think when Patrick at Frontwood's design, while he was designing this book, I think he... He really read it and approached it very well and sort of understood what I was trying to do there. And we had the we had like a few options to look at, but I think this spoke to us like mm -hmm. the best. And yeah, so we made a beautiful book. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful choice. What what were the original colors? Um it was they were it was like a fluorescent like a kind of a long like a fluorescent peach and like a really pale indigo. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, I think this is just, a, it's a great choice. It really makes the book stand out. Um, and it's so cool to see that it, I, you know, I was interpreting it right because I was sort of looking for India and Ireland in both of these maps, but then it wasn't, you know, it's its own place. It's such yeah, a cool yeah. concept. I like that. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, if anybody has any questions, feel free to leave them in the chat. People are just enjoying the poems right now. But uh, um, let's hear another one. Yeah, I will read... And the poem on page 36, um, hotel poem, Fatih, Istanbul. I eat my Turkish breakfast in a plate that is an imitation of Byzantine mosaics in the Hagia Sophia. Mehmet, the server, asks me if home for me is Alhind. When I say yes, it is, he marvels at the grandeur of the Taj Mahal, where both of us have not been yet. Mehmet tells me about the blue masjid six minarets and asks if the azan here reminds me of the azan in the Jama Masjid in Delhi. I admit that I wish I knew, as I have never been to Jama Masjid either. However, Delhi is nothing like Istanbul. It does not rain in Istanbul in July like the way it does in North India. Here, I wake up to a shining view of the Bosphorus and I sleep to it, 
feeling the weightlessness of the sea taking over every night. And that was Hotel Poem, Faith, Istanbul. And uh, when I read that poem, I, what may, I wanted to ask, what, um, what do you miss most about India since you travel so much? Um, is, is there something, I, wonder if, I wondered if it was the rain, is there something that you feel like you miss when you're, you're in Ireland or in, in Turkey or Cairo or wherever you are? Yeah, I think it, the way it rains in Palampur is unlike anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely do miss that. I think I do just miss the mountains and my family whenever I'm not home home. Because I think it's still, I think calling the entire country home is still a very big statement to me. But when when I refer to home, I think I refer to the home in the mountains. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, you know, being at the base of the, the mountains there, mm-hmm. I mean, it must, I mean, with the monsoon, it must be like, like constant downpours, right? Yeah, yeah, for months, day and night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, do you, do you like when you hear like a pouring rain elsewhere, do you, do you sort of, does it bring you back? Sometimes, yeah, but uh, yeah, but it it used to rain so much in Ireland as well, and um, especially when I was living in Belfast, it's like further up north, and it used to rain even more there. But that rain's so different. Sometimes it might be raining outside, and you don't even realize it's raining. But when it rains here, it's a big event. Like you know, the whole landscape changes, and you know, the whole yeah, it's very different. We have not normalized rain, even if it rains so much here. Uh-huh. Like we will, if if it starts to rain here now, we will talk about it for three days. <laughs> yeah, well, well, here where, where I am, it rains. Uh, you know, after May first or so, it won't rain again until September or October. Oh, that's is, long. Yeah, it's depressing. I think, but everybody else is happy. Like people love Southern California, but I don't know. Um, uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, sort of the state of poetry in India. Um, it's mm-hmm. something I've tried to sort of understand for a long time and I can't even get my mind around it um, mm-hmm. or get a grasp of what the poetry scene or what the poetry community is like there. Um, you know, we, uh, we're doing a tribute to Indian poets coming up in the fall um, and we've published a whole bunch of poets. Um, but, but what is poetry, where, what place does poetry have contemporary poetry in, in society in India? It was really cool to hear that it, it was being published in uh, children's poetry in a newspaper um, but no longer. Um, and I just, I, I don't know, I can't f- get my mind around how, where poetry's place is in the culture in India. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, I think it is very segmented. When we are talking of a poetry community, there is no one community here. There are multiple communities that coexist. And that is because there are so many languages that are being spoken here. There's work being produced in each language. And I feel like, where I place myself is that I am an Indian poet writing in English mm-hmm. and uh, I would pick that community for myself and I feel like lots happened a lot is happening I feel like the way when I was in Ireland like there was there was a group of Belfast poets that sort of like set the ground for future generations and like people from outside people from Belfast they, they all want to be a part of that community and I feel like that happened in India in Bombay mm-hmm. Uh, like ages ago when, you know, people like Don Morris and uh, Alton were like producing work there. And I feel like a lot of contemporary poets followed the suit and like great things are happening there. But I think that's like the only one city where I can think of a community that has existed for over generation, generation for uh, Indian poetry that's being written in English. And 
like you know there and with with different languages i feel like it's very easy to get lost among what happens mm-hmm. here so that's why it can be really confusing for anyone who's outside but i could also like live and like right here without being a part of a community because like it's a small it's a small town and like whatever community i'm part of it's like somewhere else like you know i would i would go to delhi to hang out with a bunch of poets or like i would travel to mumbai to do that but i seldom do that here until someone comes to me so i feel like it's very easy to do that without caring what's happening in the rest of the world but there's so much good contemporary stuff happening like I feel like I always wait for the Bombay Literary Magazine to publish a new issue. I think I get introduced to the best of new poets who are writing currently through that magazine. And I myself was published in that magazine a few years ago when I had just started to putting together uh, when I had just started to put together this book quite seriously. And it was a big moment for me because I felt it, it felt like, you know, I was not living in India at that moment, but I was living elsewhere. But it made me so happy that my work was being published in my home country and will be uh, read by poets who who loved there, who like produced work there, who published work there. So yeah, definitely there's there's a lot that uh, that's going on around. Um, and a few of the editors who are associated with the Bomb Military Magazine, the, over the pandemic, they started the quarantine train. So it's just like a bunch of poets meeting on Zoom twice a week and they do really cool events. Like they would have guest, guest, uh, guest speakers every now and then. They even do workshops and yeah, but it's all happening on Zoom. So. Mm-hmm. What the community feels like has de- is definitely evolving and evolve in years to come. But I feel like there's so much going on here. Like every major city in India has their own literary festival. Every major city in India has something different going on. And I feel like when we talk of the commune, poetry community in India, it's like, it's very segmented. We're talking mm-hmm. of multiple communities. And I think it'll be easier to talk of one community than like talking of it as a whole because there's just so much going on. Is there any uh, sort of movement to, to get more translations? So there's a universal, you know, maybe in English um, or, or anything like that? Like, so, so the, the different languages aren't so fragmented and um and do you do any translation are you interested in that at all i try to but i think i am still a learner if i can mm-hmm. if i i cannot like talk of myself as a translator at all i've tried to do that a few times but i feel like i have still have a long way to go i'm still like learning how to approach translation and yeah so i um uh, yeah so uh yeah i feel like there there are a few publication houses which are solely dedicated to put works out there which are works of translation from regional languages into english and also vice versa like translating thing uh, things from english to all the regional languages and i think seagull books in kolkata is doing great work on that and like all genres like poetry fiction non-fiction and yeah, I think a lot's happening there. And I feel like a lot happens on small scale as well. Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah, like small scale magazines, periodicals, that sort, that sort do, of thing. Do uh, any mainstream um, presses, do newspapers still do that? You mentioned that the one that you published in um, doesn't do that anymore, but do other magazines or newspapers do that? I, I can't really think of a poetry column in any mm-hmm. newspaper. Yeah, I think like free speech at like, is like, it's like it's such a danger in a country and that and it it has been it has been like 
it has been like that for a few years now sadly mm-hmm. and i feel like as a child growing up here I, i think about this a lot i feel like i felt like i had a lot more freedom to speak up through any medium whether it's mm-hmm. poetry theater or anything like that even when i was in college there was culturally a lot more going on than now i feel like a lot of stuff that happens now is very censored mm-hmm. and you know i feel like we used to approach whatever we had to do with a freer mind and yeah. probably it's it's still happening but i i feel like it has changed a lot over the last few years yeah um, do you do you censor what you write at all because of that or is your approach more just to publish what you're writing in other countries uh, i have never really thought of that because i've sort of like whenever like i'm sending work out or anything i just like send it out to where all the places where i like to read the work like all the magazines i like to read i would i try to understand a magazine first before sending work out to them and i think when it comes to censoring i think our generation still doing it a little less but i'm really scared for the generations to come who might have to do it a lot more than we have ever had to do and yeah so i think i think a lot about that in those terms mm-hmm. Um, well, let's hear another poem. I lost track again of how many poems we've read so far, but uh, I, I don't know if you I've read any. four. Okay. I'll read more. <laughs> okay. I will read uh, the poem on page 54, Trading uh, Himalayan Saffron for Homesickness. It will take us 50 minutes to reach the nearest airport. Mom will insist that I sit in the front seat. Dad will drive. We will try our best to take care of small talk business. My eyes will twitch with a tear or two like the wick that is not the correct size for the candle. The winter silverware on the hills won't have corroded yet. It could take me from six months to a year to make the journey back. I know mom will have secretly packed enough saffron for me to last a lifetime. Yet she will say, take some more kesar for the road. We don't know when we will see you next. And that was a trading Himalayan saffron for homesickness. Do you want to do another one? Yeah, I will. I will read uh, Housing Crisis on Raglan Road on page 50. Housing Crisis on Raglan Road. During my early teenage years, when I was old enough to learn big words, I thought solitude was solitude. the extra t a sword to cut through a lapsed state of being on one's own it appears maybe like a briny situation in the mouth that prefers the taste of days spent alone was it solitude's better byword for a happier state of mind was it a watchword for failed solitude the worst of all our fears in dublin on a day as gray as if smeared with pewter I think of Kavanaugh while walking through Rackland Road and his poem of the same name. I think of no kin, no suitor. I think of the debt these houses must have owed to the people who every day in the city seek recruiters for new jobs with no solitude or solitude or abode. That is housing crisis on Rackland Road. And of course, the, look, we were talking about before, the home the sense of home and what home means plays throughout the book so much I and mean, that's a central theme really 
Um, and one of the things that I noticed is that you seem to um, have a lot of interest in writers' homes um, and where writers have lived. Um, can you explain what, what is it about that that, that makes you interested in, in, I don't know, like what is it about that that, that you're sort of interested in? I think, like, if I'm, if if there's, like, a certain literary figure whose life I want to trace or about whom I want to know more, I think the first thing that I naturally come across is where they lived. And when I see that, I'm, like, interested in more along those lines, like, where, like, where they lived, how, uh, which street, which, which house, and so on. And I feel like uh, a lot of this... Like you know, living. Suppose I, if I'm sitting in Palampur and I want to think of Shakespeare's home, the first thing I was like, I like, I just like type it on my Google search box and wait for the internet to take me there. But I feel like when I'm doing it for different writers sitting in different places, uh, there's a there's an underlying feeling that I want to be there and like see it myself. How was it like? But I think it's just like the idea. I've I've been interested in the idea of space that people occupy since very long. And I feel like through these writers and artists, I'm just I'm just like doing it in some way, you know. And yeah, like a lot of us, a lot of like Leonard Cohen's house in Hydra. Never been there, but I want to go there. And like, yeah, I feel like. A space is so important, a closed space so important when you are trying to think of a literary movement or when you are trying to think of how that work was written, how that work was produced. So, yeah, it's, it's, I don't have a reason to do it. I just do it. <laughs> like, I'm just making excuses as to why I do it. I just do it because I like to do it. I used to like to do it a lot more when I was writing the book than now. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that's how it has been. So, so which, whose houses have you been to? You mentioned Keats. Uh, what, what other houses have you been to, like, physically? Um, yeah, I've, I've crossed Keats' house, never been in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there is... And then there's like Lord Byron and Claire Claremont just going on a holiday. That's a product of my imagination. And then there is the house of Amrita Pritam and Ambrose in New Delhi, which was actually demolished. So when mm -hmm. I was trying to think of it, yeah, I didn't like sort of get much, but except this underlying sad feeling that, you know, it should have been there, but it's not anymore. Yeah. And yeah, I think Istanbul has been one city which does a lot of justice to the writers who wrote there. And Primo Levi's house, Primo Loti's house, sorry. Primo Loti's house, it's like there's an entire hill name after him and there's the house is a good museum. And I feel like these houses are just agents that can do so well to 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 make young people feel that you know they can write like you know they can be big cultural centers and yeah I think it's very important if to do something with them I think we can't just let them mm -hmm. go they're too precious to let them go and I think if 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 it is executed properly they can do a lot of good to the community yeah the the idea of um just caring about the space that we occupy I think is how you put it it's something yeah. I, I worry about. You know, like you mentioned that um, a lot is going on on Zoom, you know, because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Yeah, and just so yeah. much of our sort of consciousness is moving online, online which is really yeah. not, there's a lot of benefits to it, of course, like the audience, like we used to have a reading series um, here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And only, you know, only 
25 people could fit in the room, yeah. you know, and it was a, a wonderful space for poetry and it felt great, but it was the lim the reach was limited. Uh, and here, you know, a thousand people or something can listen to this really easily mm -hmm. and, um, and do. And, and so you get that sort of broader reach and the sort of common ground and the sort of like meta space that we're creating online. But, but, but we're sort of losing the sense of nature in the sense of like how much place means to us. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know, do you think that, does that have something to do with, with um, what you write about? Like mm -hmm. trying to save that, preserve that sense of, um, of the importance of the spaces we occupy? Yeah, I feel like this met kind of meta space that we are creating on Zoom and everything, this is important to a certain extent, but not at the cost of the physical space, because I still don't think the way we are doing things, it's a very sustainable way of doing things. Like, I feel like if we have to preserve all these little movements, I feel like we can't do that at the cost of what's happening in a physical space. And yeah, I think it's important for us to do it both ways, but not at the cost of each other for sure. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I was thinking of something, it just escaped me. But uh, yeah, so uh, it'll come back to me. It was, a, <laughs> it was an interesting point. Yeah, I was thinking of graves actually. Oh, yeah. really? Uh -huh. Yeah, because like I had not been to a famous person's grave ever uh, oh, really? like before I moved to Ireland because yeah that's like like the religion I come from and the religion I grew up in we don't bury people so yeah the, when I the first grave of the famous person I went to was like Yeats's grave in near Sligo and like I went to his grave and sort of didn't know what to do with myself mm -hmm. once I'm there how to like yeah, well, I was there, but what do I do now? Like, how do I approach the whole thing of, like, remembering someone that way? Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I feel like I'm talking of graves after I'm talking about, like, physical houses because it's just, I think it's the idea of space that makes yeah. me think about all those things. And there's a there's a poem in the book about uh, visiting Marx's grave in mm -hmm. London, Marx's grave. So yeah, that I feel like that has been a lot on my mind too while thinking of space. It's just not a predominant theme mm -hmm. in the book, graves, but I do think of that a lot as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you know that that comparison between the grave site and a and a house where you you know one mm -hmm. place where you're you're not moving and you're dead, mm -hmm. and the other where yeah. you lived and were alive, and and in a way that you know the space that you occupied is so much more important to who you were mm. than like yeah. where your physical body ended up or something. So that, that contrast mm. is really interesting. Yeah. But I feel like the transition, how it happens is also so important because you could never know where a person lived in their life, or you could know, you could know about multiple places where they live, but they'll, they, there's only one place where they'll finally end up mm -hmm. if you think of it. So yeah, the transitions like, very, very intriguing. Yeah. And uh, Nivedita Karthik uh, says, uh, is, is grave also not a home, a final mm -hmm. resting house, but a house nonetheless? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's that too. Um, in, in a way, you know, our our, um, our our body is a house too, you know, a house for our, our consciousness, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, well, do you want to, let's see, I think there's two more poems you wanted to read. Was that the the numbers yeah. right? Okay. I want to read one more and then we'll talk a little bit more and, and then finish up with the last one. That, that sounds good. I will read uh, The Women Who Dine Alone, Dine Alone on page 70. Okay. 
I think this was published in the Bombay Literary Magazine for the first time before it made, it, it made its way out in the world. The Women Who Dine Alone, Dine Alone, one. On my way to a diner on Dame Street, I see 16-year-old singing Barbie anthem on cobbled streets of Temple Bar, beer cans in their hands. It was like seeing people seeing films in which they wished to be cast as leading actors. On getting to the diner, I sit with my dinner in the first floor sitting area, watch a woman blow drying another woman's hair inside a third story Georgian window on the other side. Two, I finish my food quickly, sit there gathering bits for the film I should be writing. My actor, an Irishman who wants to get through the length and breadth of India on trains only. His bed on which he sleeps in Dublin comes from Ikea and is made in China. When he watched Titanic at the Odeon in 1997, he yelled to himself, for fuck's sake, sink. My actress has traveled to 14 countries to photograph women who dine alone. She wants to beat the single female diner syndrome, dining alone, not a tour de force. She dines alone too, in her country, in 14 countries, not having to come home to cats or dogs. The women who dine alone, dine alone, they just do. Three, on my way home, I'm told by a friend there is something very English about the way I hold my cigarette between my fingers. I nod, but the words get to my blood and bile. In my dream, his ghost whispers with a lilt of Americanness in my ear, correcting my accent. The following day, I go out wearing the sweet scent of cigarette ashes on my sweater. Table for one, please. And that was the woman who dine, the women who dine alone, dine alone. Uh, from The Yak Dilemma. Um, Gordon Coppola um, says, uh, it's so cool to hear the Irish lilt incorporated into the sound of your speech, um, which is something I noticed too. It's a really interesting blend of accents. It's really cool. Um, how much do you feel like Ireland has been incorporated into your poetry? A lot of it. I feel like I learned a lot about craft only in Ireland. And I feel like even when I have to even when I have to learn more about it, I feel like we go back to Irish poets a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what are you writing next? Like what, um, you know, do you think, do you, you know, I think poets always write from obsessions. We talked about your obsession mm -hmm. with home and, and the sense of, of space and, and no man's land. A bit. Do, you, do you still feel like that's the same thing that you're obsessed with that you figured or that, that you still have a lot of um, um, stuff to mine out of that? concept or do you think that um are you moving on to other topics like what are you working on now i am actually working on an obsession of house currently another oh, yeah. house so the uh, the foundation poem for that project is actually in the yak dilemma it's called appointment with nora richards and what i'm doing is so nora richards was an irish theater practitioner who lived in a village near my hometown and she was sort of my introduction to irish literature when i was very young and I sort of didn't realize it was happening that way but yeah she she did a lot of work here she has her house here which is still a sort of a cultural center where activities take place and she has a small amphitheater where she used to do plays with 
the local community and all of that. So what I'm doing right now is developing a sequence of poems which puts Nora Richards in contemporary settings. So I'm thinking of what Nora would have done if she would have gone out for a coffee, what Nora would have done if she was hailing a cab and things like that. So I'm, I'm having a lot of uh, fun while playing around with what she was, what she could be and how I know her, how people know her and all of those things. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's sort of the only thing I'm working on right now. But I think I've thought about this project for a long, long time and I've been unconsciously thinking about this, working towards this for a long time now. It's just that now I've had the time and space to just do that and nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, a couple more really quick questions from the audience. So Patricia Rockwood um, asks, uh, which poets do you just read because you love them? I think, or, or uh, which poets do you turn to for inspiration and which poets do you read just because you love them? We always like suggestions. Okay. So the, what was the first one? Um, who, which poets do you read for inspiration and which do you read because you love them? And, um, um, and I don't know if yeah, that's an interesting distinction to make too, between the yeah. two different types. Um, is, do you have a, do you, do you make that distinction when you're reading? I think so. I feel like I read, I feel like I read like poets like Anne Carson when I'm trying to do both. And I recently thought that maybe she is my literary godmother maybe she is if someone knows her please tell her and yeah i feel like for inspiration for inspiration i would even sit down and read homer you know mm -hmm. and like i would i read anything that ranges from homer to kieran carson to, uh, but uh the poets i love i feel like uh recently i've really come to love the works of uh, this um, uh, American Tibetan poet, Serin Wangmul Thapa. Do you know her? I don't actually know. I actually met her in Belfast and it was so interesting mm -hmm. as we were talking about poems. She grew up like near my hometown and now she she teaches in States and we met in Belfast, like no place and no common ground for us. But it was very interesting. And that was like sort of my introduction to her work. But I feel like uh, it really spoke to me like the way and, uh, she was approaching exile, home, and all those themes. And other contemporary poets I love are Zafar Kunal, definitely. Been obsessed with whatever new work Zafar puts out there ever since I came to know about his work. And yeah, Rebecca Perry, a uh, London-based poet, really like her work. She has a, a new book out, it's called Stone Fruit, can't wait to read it. And in 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 the US, I've also really loved Solma Sharif's work. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait for a new book, yeah. That's great. Um, so where was it? So Kimberly McNeil uh, mentions your endings are amazing, poem after poem. And I was noticing that too, you really have really good endings. Um, how do you how do you approach the end of a poem, and, and how do you know that it's finished? Is there is there a secret to your uh, your talent with that? Ending so hard. I could sit on a poem for years and not know how to end it. So I think like I do take the endings of my poem seriously, and that's why I struggle with how to end them a lot. But yeah, it's sort of like it has happened to me a lot. I have even when I was like putting the book together, when I had to send in my first draft, I had all these poems that would just incomplete or i had like multiple ways to end them but i had to actually set on one way to end them to move further so yeah yeah i think about the endings of poems a lot mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and so I think this answers uh, Carlton Johnson's follow question, but he says, do you begin with the ending in mind? Does that ever happen, or is the ending always a surprise? It seldom happens. Yeah. I wish I was that organized, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, well, I personally, I think it's really hard to write. This is an argument that I have with Megan sometimes, um, yeah. because she, cause she thinks that you can't, I think that it's, if you have the ending in mind, it kind of ruins the spontaneity and the creativity yeah. of the poem to be writing yeah. toward a destination. So I yeah. specifically try to avoid that. Yeah, um, but a lot of people completely disagree with me, and and write great poems anyway. So, <laughs> I guess yeah, I'm I feel. Wrong. I also feel like I'm really put off by really concrete endings. Mm -hmm. um, I just sort of, I just sort of like feeling when I'm reading a poem that a lot more could happen there, a lot more still happening there. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot more happening in probably a meta space. That I don't know. Yeah, yeah, like sort of there's like, like a leave them wanting more type. Yeah, you yeah, know? exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, there's just a tiny bit of time left. Do you want to read one last poem? Yeah, uh, since I'm in Palimpur, I will read Room in Palimpur. It's on page 78. Okay. It was a bit like entering the wrong room in my dream, where I saw you knitting as you sat on the same bed as the woman with a neat bob who was talking on the phone. It could have been an Edward Hopper painting, but I recognized the sheets and the angles at which the light reflected in that room. In the same dream, I watched you sit with my mother as you checked your email, updated your Facebook friends with the misdoings of the government, etc. On waking up, I shouted to ask my mother if you were still in the house, only to realize that I had woken up in a different house in a different country, thousands of miles away from you and my mother, where the sheets are new and the light does not bounce back at familiar angles. A beautiful poem, a beautiful poem to end on. That was Room in Palampur from the Yak Dilemma. Thanks so much uh, for being a guest today, Supriya. Thank you. It was, just, it was really lovely chatting to you. Yeah, it was just a great fun talking and, and really interesting, great poems. Thanks so much for sharing them and, and being you. here. Thank you for making me a part of it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, my pleasure. Talk to you later. Yeah, bye. bye. Yeah, that was uh, Supriya Kardaliwal. And once again, her book uh, that we were talking about here is The Yak Dilemma. Uh, the Yak Dilemma is available from uh, Makina Books, Right there, it's 10 pounds in the UK. Um, a lot of great blurbs here on the back, too, and that really cool cover with the uh, the, the created map. Um, you can find more about uh, Supriya's work at her website, which is spelled just like her name here, Supriya Carr Dollywall, for the people just listening. I will spell it. It's S-U-P-R-I-Y-A-K-A-U-R-D-H-A-L-I-W-I. A L Supriya Cardaliwal.com. So find more of her work there. Pick up a copy of the Yak Dilemma from Makina Poetry. And um that'd be great. So uh we're gonna move on to the third portion of the show. This is now a three, it's like a tri a trifecta kind of show. There's three sections, and the third section is the totally open lines. Now this week's uh prompt for the Rattlecast, if you had a prompt poem that you wrote, the prompt for this week was to right here. The prompt was to write a poem about a parasite, uh, be as literal or as figurative as you wish. So if you had your prompt poem, feel free to share it during the open lines, but feel free to share anything. Uh, news poems for uh, Poetry Spawn Live that we didn't have time for. That'd be great if you could share any uh, current events-based poems. Those are always fun. Um, share prompt poems or share anything, you know, something you recently published. How you do that, uh, I'll put this up on the screen again. 
Um, all you have to do is email it to openmic at rattle.com. That's openmic at rattle.com. Do that right now so it gets to me in time if you haven't done it already. Then I can show it on screen as you read. Then pick one or the other. Pick either Skype, uh, send me a chat message at Rattle Poetry, all one word. That's Rattle Poetry. Uh, just say hi. I'll wave back. That'll put me on your call list, and I will call you back when it's your turn. Uh, the other option is to do it by phone. The phone number is 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. We have someone calling in right now at a 352. We'll get to you for sure. We love first-time callers. We also have uh, Gordon Coppola, Greg Bell, Nivedita, Karthik, um, Julian Matthews, uh, Patricia Rockwood, um, and that 352 number. So we got a bunch of people lined up for the open lines. I'm going to get stuff situated, let you do that, and get prepared um, and I'll be back in just a second. Uh, before I do, let me put next week's guest up on the screen. Next week's guest is going to be Melissa Balmain. Um, Melissa is um, the editor of Light, the poetry of light verse. I don't like that song. Let me do this one. This is better. Yeah, let's do that one. So, uh, yeah, Melissa Balmain is the editor of Light. Her newest book is Walking In On People. Uh, that is from Able Muse Press, I believe. She also has... I can't reach it from here. She has a really interesting um, sort of a uh, children's book for adults that's humorous. Uh, she writes humorous verse. And uh, it really talk, interesting talking to her next week about humor in poetry on Rattlecast number 96. That'll be Sunday, June 6th at the new regular time, which will be 8 p.m. Eastern time, uh, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll do a half an hour, once again, of uh, Poetry Spawn Live first, and then we'll do an hour with Melissa. Then we will do open lines as long as we want. So um, let's looking forward to doing that. I'm going to take a quick break, um, stand up and stretch, refresh your drinks, get a new cup of coffee or something. Uh, I'll be back in like 30 seconds. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for uh, letting me stand up and stretch. It's a long, long time to just sit in one place, I think. I think everybody should stretch up. We should have a group stretch. And uh, what I do is stand up and uh, get all the poems ready from a standing position, uh, which uh, feels much better. Uh, Greg Fridman is also here. Uh, Tamara Rate. So we have a whole bunch of people. Guy Chambers. Um, Greg Bell, I think I already mentioned. So we'll get to a bunch of people. First, let me see, show you our... Uh, our poems that we did from the prompt uh, once again the prompt was to okay so the prompt this week as I mentioned uh, was right here it was to write write a poem about a parasite be as little or as figurative as you wish now usually I do a, um, a, a psyku at the end of every poetry spawn live episode and then I try to do the prompt poem, too, every week. So I usually have two poems I share. I'll try to keep doing that, even though we're doing one show, uh, especially because the psych who are really short, which is sort of the point. But for this week, since we didn't have um, much time, we had only five days, and it was a busy week for me, I combined both the psych who and the prompt poem into one poem. So I looked up for a science news story um, that was based on a, was about a parasite. And actually, there were a lot just in the last week. Um, so I found about a dozen poems about parasites just published in scientific literature this week. And the most interesting one was this right here. Um, this was Parasites as Fountains of Youth. Study finds infected ants live much longer. 
life expectancy of tapeworm-infected worker ants is significantly higher than that of their uninfected nestmates and resembles that of queen ants. Um, so, so there's this little tiny species of uh, acorn ant in Europe. Um, they, the whole colony fits inside of an acorn is where they usually live. There are about 100 of them that fit in there. They're only two millimeters in length. They're very, very tiny ants. And I don't think there are any pictures here in this article. But, um, but these ants um, become infected with a tapeworm. And, so, and the tapeworm lives in their blood, their little anti-insect blood. And they get about 70 tapeworms living in them. And rather than shorten their lifespan, these tapeworms make them live longer like a queen. And nobody really knows how to do it. It's, um, they, they, this paper hypothesizes some possibilities. Could be um, that the tapeworms are releasing antioxidants uh, that help the, um, the insect live longer, um, having less cellular decay. Um, they think that maybe it's, it's altering the ant's um, genes to express um, more uh, queen ant genes extending the life that way because the queen ants live several years the worker ants only live a few months usually and um so they sort of live like a queen if they're infected with this nasty parasite and what the parasite does very similar to um that that parasite that that cats um give to mice what's that called i can't remember but uh very similar uh, the, it's because the uh, this tapeworm's breeding cycle includes being eaten by a woodpecker <laughs> so the so somehow the tapeworms get inside the ants reproduce in there and then um make the ant get eaten by a tapeworm i mean by a woodpecker um to to repeat the whole cycle all over again and um it's just very very strange and interesting and so this was my psyku based on that it was it's a series it's a renge and um here we go this is a renga renge and um so so this is sort of supposed to be written in a renge is a is a sort of american version of the renga uh, which is uh, six haiku alternating between two poets usually. And so here I had in a conversation between the ant and the tapeworm, or one of the 70 tapeworms infecting it. The ant is the uh, Temnothorax nylandiri, and the tapeworm is the Anomotania brevis. So this is a, a haiku conversation between the two in renge form. Harvest time. My sisters fill the cup of an acorn. A cup full of cup, nesting dolls. Passing cloud, the woodpecker's shadow moving on. Even the dew is collecting dew, worker bee. The drone of the drones, always dying. A yellow leaf, softened by rainwater, fountain of youth. So that is by both my prompt poem and my psyku today. And Megan's prompt poem, she was also, we were both uh, flummoxed by the short turnaround time. Megan had a short one, but it's a really good short one here. Double parasite. A tick attaches to the hiker's leg as he carves his name into the oldest tree. I'll read it again, double parasite. A tick attaches to the hiker's leg as he carves his name into the oldest tree. Of course, we, you know, we hike a lot and um, we are very upset by the, the, just the, defacement of nature that you see all over the place i'm from graffiti on you know on, on massive ancient pine trees covered in graffiti to um you know they're bristlecone pines that are thousands of years old up in the mountains here and uh people carve like a heart into them it's uh so so megan was addressing that with uh, this double parasite micro poem
Now let's go to the open lines and see what you have to share with us. We'll try to go in the order they were received, try to get to new people relatively soon. I should say if I call, I'm going to be calling you sort of from the future because there's a 30 second or so delay on the live stream. So be sure when I call to turn off your stream or at least mute it and only talk to me through the phone or Skype because uh, otherwise it gets confusing. There's two voices at different times playing in your ear. It's just like calling into the to a radio show. So we'll start out with uh, Gordon Coppola, who says he has a parasitical poet poem to share here. Let's call up Gordon. Hey, Gordon, how you doing? I am great, Tim. How about yourself? I'm doing excellent. It's fun. I, I like the com combination, actually. I'm, I'm having a good time here. It's a good variety. Um, so, so you have a prompt poem. What do you have to share with us? Yeah, um, it's been, it'd been a couple of years since I'd written an acrostic poem, mm -hmm. and uh, it's such a fun generative process. I thought I would try it for this one. Uh, so this is Acrostic of Love. Interesting. Okay. And <laughs> for the parasite prom. <laughs> no. Okay, let's hear it. Practically everyone in the world aims to find love, but it's love that finds you, really. Love infiltrates, then takes full control attaching itself between mind and genitalia, spinal column co-opted as propaganda channel. If you follow your heart, you'll be happy. The parasite I've got lies. Think of the sex. Everything dies that ever could have mattered. <laughs> Great last line there, Gordon. Thanks for sharing that. My pleasure, Tim. Thanks. Yep. Have a good one. Yep, you too. Bye. That was an acrostic love from Gordon Coppola. Um, let's see. So we will also have, let's see what Kimberly, Kimberly McNeil is here too. Uh, I'm going to go first to, uh, Nivedita. We're trying to time it right. Cause she's, uh, in the process of, uh, a busy day right now. So let's, uh, I think this is a good time to hit up Nivy. She has two here. She has both the prompt and, uh, poetry spawn. Hey, Nivy, how you doing? Hi, Tim. I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing very good. Uh, you're kind of quiet today. I don't know if you're far away from yeah, the mic. Just, just one second. Okay. I'm just got the fan. Sorry. <laughs> okay, no problem. So sorry about that. You're just shifting house, and it's it's all everything's like a bit all over the place right now. So <laughs> no problem. So so you're moving to a different house? Um, just. Five floors up, the uh -huh. same the same condo we're staying. I just moved a couple of floors up. Gotcha. Well, I hope it goes well. I hate I hate moving. There's nothing. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess oh, being in new places. And at this yeah. time with the pandemic, it's it's worse. There's, there's absolutely no help. So yeah, yeah. Well, uh, good luck for for all that you have to do today. Um, you have two poems. Which one did you want to share first? Um, either one. Both are ready for me. One is a prompt poem, and one is a poet's response new story poem. So whichever one you pull up, I'm ready to read that. Okay. Well, I've got the. Do the next later. I've got the common human parasites. A funny science lesson. Okay, great. <laughs> Common human parasites, a funny science lesson. One, I'm a bloody merry kind of mosquito. No GNT or whiskey for me, not even a mojito. I do so love to take many tiny bites, despite being only a temporary parasite. But do remember, my lust for blood is second to none when all is said and done. Anopheles Gambi is what I'm called. And tales of my many string operations will certainly leave you enthralled. Two, roses are red and violets are blue. But I'm so in love with your head and your thick curly hair too. So I'll crawl in nice and slow, so soft and silent, you won't even know. Until I've made my home and bred some tiny pediculus humanis capitis. 
And then there's not much you can do except continue to feed us. <laughs> Tinia Solium's the name and investigating your insights is my game. Unobtrusive as can be, I'll make my way in and then unroll myself and start measuring you from deep within. My tape measure is never wrong and I can gauge when your brain cells have last been at their active stage. <laughs> Oh wow! So I'm glad. I, unfortunately, it doesn't work for you, but I, I'm gonna. I'm glad that this episode is in the morning, so I don't have to lie in bed thinking about all these parasites. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, being biologists, that's what we've grown up with. So mm -hmm. I think, at least for you and me, at least, it's not that weird. I mean, it's what I've dealt with my whole life. So I'm like, oh yeah, there's a kid over here. Yeah, yeah, give me my lunch. I'll just eat here. You just wait here. So. <laughs> Well, I just don't, I mean, the, um, you know, stuff crawling in my hair. I mean, at least and I don't that's have. That's just lice. I mean, that's, that's just head lice. Yeah. Which is still, common. still, still. Um, do you want to do is the other one the, too? Is the, yeah, sure. It's the sort of creepy crawlies that gets us, uh -huh. I think. <laughs> it is. Um, and so what was the other one? You had a, a poet respond too. It's about a dolphin, mm -hmm. if that helps. And basically an animatronic dolphin. Let, let's put it that way. So... The, the makers behind Freeway and all the other movies. So they have this big animatronic dolphin that they're hoping to release in like amusement parks and things like that so that uh, real dolphins aren't sort of kept in captivity or something like that. So is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I, I don't know. So that's basically what I've tried to say here. <laughs> okay, well, I tried to, let's see. There was a big ad. Let me see if, it, if, it, if it's over quick, we could just, we could show the dolphin. We'll uh -huh. see. Okay, here it comes. Created for animatronics for Flipper and Free Willy. Okay, let's get to the dolphin. Come on, people. <laughs> is that, that's not the dolphin, is it? It is. It's, it's oh my extremely God. lifelike and exactly. <laughs> wow. That, I cannot believe that's, that's not a real dolphin. Oh, that is creepy. We're going to have zoos and stuff full of like fake animals, which I guess is great for animals. But um. But then again, that's exactly what I was going for with the poem. My last line is sort of like, it's good for the animals, but is it again a case of AI taking over? Because remember my last week's poem was about a robot that cooked, so <laughs> that's gone. And now this, so like basically, I don't think living beings of any species ever need to be alive if AI is going to be doing this to all of us. So mm -hmm. let's yeah. let's just see what happens. It's I guess it's a wait and watch now. Yeah, well, for anybody who's just listening, you should go find this article because that, that dolphin looks like a real dolphin. Now, of course, dolphins are so smart. They're the worst animals to be in captivity. It's horrible mm. that they are. So it's great that they're starting with a dolphin. But wow, I, I thought that was a real dolphin. Oh, it's um, and, very freaky indeed. It really, it's uncanny. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just strange, yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's hear the poem now. Okay, great. Del the dolphin. The sun sinks and slips beneath the surface, and the silver moon starts to rise, painting the waves below and spotlighting the playful antics of the ocean's happiest critters. With smiles wide on their face, they leap and they dive and they prance, and waving their tail pins, dance to the melody of the ocean beat till the sun rises next morn. Now picture Del, Del the animatronic dolphin I mean, with a smile as real as your other friends of the sea, she swims and dances and prances just as well and hugs and kisses even better. Could this signal a beautiful new beginning where animals are no longer held in captivity? Or could this signal a beautiful new beginning where AI has taken over our world? <laughs> Seriously, it, it could be an invasion of the body snatchers type. <laughs> like Everyone's <laughs> one by one replaced 
by a mm -hmm. exact replica <laughs> and you wouldn't even know man i just wrote a science fiction book in my head <laughs> thanks thanks for sharing <laughs> well thanks for sharing that nivy always a pleasure uh, both these were really interesting thanks thank you tim lovely talking to you, yeah, you have a lovely day. yeah and good luck thank with the new you. new move yeah thank you yeah, bye, bye. So Nivy DeCarthic with two poems, uh, Del the Delphin and uh, the other one about parasites. Which one? Let's see. So let's go next to a uh, first-time caller. Let's go to that 352 number and see who that was. I'm trying to find a, a new name. Hey, this is Tim from Redland. You are live on the air to share a poem. Who am I talking to? This is Zachary Honeycutt. I submitted to the Poets Respond Challenge this past week. Okay, great. Let me uh, let me find that. And uh, where are you calling from, first of all? I'm calling from Gainesville, Florida. Cool. And uh, so, what were you writing about? Let me uh, let me find honey. How do you spell Honeycutt? Is it two T's at the end? Two T's. Yeah, everyone gets it wrong. It's uh, H U N E Y C U T T. Okay, I got I got it right. Scott Honeycutt. Here we go. Oh wait, no. It's just our, did I get it wrong? H O N E Y. H U. Oh, you. H U N. I did. Yeah. So there's another honey. There's a honey cut that's spelled the other way too, but that's an artist. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> so, a visual artist, I should say. Okay, Zachary Honeycut, American Idol, 2001. 2021. So, 2021, I should say. Yeah. So what? Uh, what was the story you were writing about? Uh, it was on MSNBC. It was just all about how Chase Beckham, uh, you know, won, won first place in American Idol. And I've been watching the show every year uh, since Adam Lambert uh, got second place years and years and years ago with my dad. And it just seemed like a really cool thing to write about. Um, I really respect Chase Beckham just as a person and an artist. Mm -hmm. I thought that 23, uh, his single, was an excellent song. I think he's a great songwriter, and I really liked his journey. I liked how uh, inspiring it was. You know, he had that uh, car crash, and he struggled with alcoholism, and he was able to turn his life around, and now he wins American Idol. So I just thought that it was meteoric, you know, how, how he rose to that position. And anyway, so I wrote a poem. I wrote a Spencerian sonnet that's all about his journey. Oh, the very, desert. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, the, the desert is uh, the desert that I'm overlooking right now. He lives down in Apple Valley, really close, almost a, yeah, local, exactly. a local poem. Um, why don't you go ahead and read it? Okay, thank you. The American Idol, 2021. His voice sounds like the desert in my ears, like he saves sand at the back of his throat from the dry valley of his early years to take us to a place far and remote. The path he once wore is what he now wrote. The only water there are tears from his eyes that he spared like the pain within each note to tell us how he had to fall to arise. He woke upside down in a wreck that lies in the lowest valley of his disgust and recalled his life flash before his eyes, the time spent on the highway in the dust. He scaled the valley, and now he's a light. Chase's story shines like a comet at night. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. Really cool. It's, it's always, I love a sonnet. Uh, good to hear one. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. Yep, that was uh, Zachary Honeycutt 
with uh, the American Idol 2021. And uh, I have another American Idol story. I'm one of the only people who can say that they broke an American Idol's nose. It is completely true. I was in a softball league with David. I can't remember his name. It was like 2008 or seven, maybe. One of those American Idol guys. He was like a redheadish guy. Kind of looked like the Chase guy. Played guitar. What was his name? David. I can't remember. He was playing third base, though. And I uh, hit a hard one hopper and uh, hit him in the face and broke his nose, blood everywhere. And um, it was not while they were filming American Idol, though. So um, that is my brush with uh, celebrity. Let's go next to um, another second time caller, but uh, Tamara Raid. Hello. Hey, Tamara, let me uh, pull you up so everybody can see it one second. Can you see me? I can, yeah. I'm just trying to fix this. Oh, I hear myself in the background, so mute that. Um, okay, perfect. I think it's gone now. Okay, so we're good. Yeah, so um, so where are you calling from? I can't remember. Um, I think you will hear by my accent. I come from France. Ah, that's right. Um, okay. But I'm currently in London. Mm-hmm. And um, and what were you writing about this week? So I wrote about the cable car crash that mm-hmm. took place in Italy and that killed 14, 15 people and mainly families with their kids. And so I heard the story of this uh, young boy who is five years old and who survived thanks to the hug to his father. Mm-hmm. Um, so I chose to write a poem about this hug, actually. Yeah, yeah, I remember this. A great poem. It was one of the ones that I was thinking about. A really good one. Um, let's hear it whenever you're ready. I have it up on screen now. A poem that hugs you before you die. So how did this nursery rhyme go? Life is a funicular. His voice like two arms embracing your chest in a safe blanket with an undertone of angst. He says... Look through the window, you see the landscape. People trying to get out, trying to escape. The shape of the mountain, immense, august, peaceful. So how did this nursery rhyme go? Life is a funicular, it is hanging by a thread. The others, they sing because they are happy to swing on a rope. Or the screams you hear, they are playing a game. And you could play too, my dear. Put your hand on my heart like a stethoscope. Count to ten, then count backwards. Tell me about how you want to become an engineer. Then close your eyes and everything around you will disappear. Yeah, great startling ending there. Um, excellent poem. Thanks so much for that. A, a, a tragic story. Um, you know, the footage out of there and the, and the pictures and the idea of of um, experiencing that, you know, out of nowhere is just, um, you know, puts puts things into perspective kind of too. So uh, thanks for writing about it and, and sharing that poem. Thank you so much. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, so that was a, a poem that hugs you before you die uh, by a t- Tamara Raitt. Okay. Let's call up uh, Julian Matthews. Then we'll do Greg Bell. Hey, Julian, good to see you today. Uh, so what do you have to share? I think you have a, a prop poem for us, right? Yeah, I think uh, the parasite. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, go ahead whenever you're ready. I'll put it up on the screen. 
figure that this might be uncomfortable for some people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Parasite. Uh, I'm a stray hair that grew white and curly and stuck out of your nose. Just so it made you itch. But when you try to scratch me, I disappear in the mirror, just out of reach of your tweezers, only to reappear when you are in close proximity with someone you need to impress. With every breath, I swung hither and thither, just under your right nostril. Or left, on reflection, you were never sure. My presence detected, the observer draws closer, notices, and backs away, repelled. It was like a strand of pubic hair gone rogue. You withdraw into the darkness, a ghost in your introvert shell, embarrassed even, supposedly tearful. I grow legs, eight legs to be sure. I creep across your cheek into your ear. I'm a spider weaving invasive thread in the cavity of your eardrum. It bugs you. You reach out and stick your finger in, dig deep repeatedly. But you can never ever reach me. You are but a box of air holes for me to reside in. I grow more legs, throbbing thorax of moving parts. My antenna smell brain. I crawl deep into your cranium. The soft tissue of your neocortex is packed, tight, mulchy, multi-layered. I find a nice warm groove to settle in and watch the sparse, agitated firing of neurons as you try to make sense of this new, prickly inhabitant. My legs turn into numerous slithering tentacles, grasping and feeding. You sneeze, you scratch both ears, your head begins to throb. Sudden migraine sweeps you like a hurricane. Somewhere inside of your head, there is rumbling and lightning. Amid the spiking and clamor, my infiltrating appendages merge with your cortical intonula. The storm passes as quickly as it came. Your headache disappeared. I'm inside you now. We are one. Eat me. Oh man, another horror. We have like a horror poem, <laughs> a horror movie poetry theme going on. That is a another creepy one. Thanks so much for sharing that, Julian. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> yep, have a good one. Bye-bye. That was uh, Julian Matthews with Parasite, and of course you can find Julian at uh, at what was it? Julian's poems. That's J U L I A N S poems. Um, I think on YouTube and uh, Twitter, I believe. Oops. Okay, let's see. Next up, we are going to go... Who haven't we done yet? Uh, oh, yeah. <clears throat> we have uh, still a bunch of people. Greg Bell, Greg Friedman. We'll do the two Gregs next. Then we got Guy Chambers. We got Kimberly uh, McNeil. We'll try uh, Greg Friedman instead. Hey, Greg. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, hello. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. If you wanted to be on video, uh, I don't see you, so if you could push the button let's there. See, uh... How about that? Here you come, I think. Yep, there you are. Ooh, nice internet connection. Let me uh, let me shrink the screen size. There you come. Okay, so um, so what do you have to share with us today? Um, well, um, Dick Westheimer and I are uh, long distance pandemic friends, uh, even though we come from the same part of the country. But I'm in Albuquerque right now, uh, and I had written uh, a poem uh, uh, about the the same topic that. Uh, that Dick wrote um, the, uh, the 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 very difficult uh, situation there in uh, in uh, the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Was this a child's world? A child's world. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have it here. Is there anything else you want to say about it before you you launch in? Uh, 
It, the uh, the news story was, of course, about Sheikh Jarrah, the neighborhood in Jerusalem, where that was at the center of some of the initial sparks to violence. But uh, uh, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, uh, and so this is sort of my take on on things. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Go ahead whenever you're ready. A Child's World. That day at Checkpoint 300 from Bethlehem into Israel, I waited, American passport in hand, Ahead, an Arab boy with his family stared at the glass wall where the Israeli guard queried him, his six-year-old face a mask. At six, would I have wondered, what does she want? What does the other soldier want, his gun bigger than me? Will they hurt my mother and father? Can we just go back home? An Arab man behind me stepped forward to help. The standoff resolved in a rustle of documents. For me, shoes back on, retrieving my backpack from x-ray, my delay just a few minutes, no catastrophe, save to admit me to al-Nakba, a people's catastrophe, that clung to me like the dust on the Hebron road as I waited for the Arab bus home to the old city. Seven years later, I wonder, does he visit his grandmother that day in East Jerusalem? Does she still live in Sheikh Jarrah, or have strangers eroded the stones of yet another family's legacy? Did a cousin's rash act trigger retaliation, a West Bank home in flames? Was he there today on the noble sanctuary with his father in the Al-Aqsa Mosque? Did he run blinded across its sacred stones? Or did he grow up to man the missiles in Gaza for Hamas? Had other strangers in this cycle of anguish where mothers on both sides mourn? All this rises in smoke today over Lod, over Eliakim, over Tel Aviv, over Ashkelon, over Gaza City, over Jerusalem, over the Temple Mount, where I watch in memory from the church of Dominus Flavit and weep with the rabbi from Galilee. Yeah, great ending. Uh, great poem there. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, You're most welcome, Tim. Thanks yeah. for you and, and all you do. Yeah, my pleasure. It, it always is. Thanks. Hope you can join again soon. I will. Thanks. Yep, bye. That was A Child's World by uh, Greg Friedman uh, from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, let me make, let me see. So we still have Guy Chambers, Patricia Rockwood, and Spartacos. That'll probably be as much as we have time for. Let's call up Guy Chambers. Hey, Guy, how you doing today? Oh, not too bad. How you doing? I'm doing good. What do you got for us? Yeah, I got this one poem, like, it's for, like, talk about parasites, but then I looked at a different angle, a joker came up. Interesting. Uh, I know years ago, like, uh, I always hear the word, oh, this guy's a joker or something like that, so it's kind of like a real parasite type of a person. So I call this joker here. I'm going to read it here. Yeah, go ahead. Interesting. Yeah. Another joker. Dealt from the deck. Shifty. Snaky-eyed. Ivory passion, enthroned with black magic, straddling the issues, honey tongue, stirs the embers between the lines, a flip of a card, twist of fortune, whitewash, double dealing, a heroic Judas kiss. Excellent. Very interesting take, guy. Yeah, I was just wanted to like say I got if anybody want to read more of my poetry, I got them on Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. I'm under Guy Chambers author. And especially Instagram you can show a lot of places that are being published and everything else. I know I got some more publications coming up. 
not, they'd be online there, and also I'm on YouTube under Guy Chambers' author. Very so cool. So if anybody wants to uh, look up some of my poetry, it'd be great. Yeah, for sure. That's Guy Chambers. That's uh, G-U-Y uh, Chambers, C-H-A-M-B-E-R-S. Uh, yep, that's Author, it, yep. find them on Facebook and uh, uh, Instagram. Yeah, Instagram and YouTube. I'm on Guy Chambers' poetry. It's more live uh, open mic of things. I've got 18 on there. I'll be doing more coming out here in a lot, too, so... Very okay, cool. Then. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks, thanks for sharing that, Guy. Yep. Bye. Bye. Okay, that was Guy Chambers with uh, Joker. Um, okay, I think that might be it. So let me make sure we didn't miss anybody. Oh, yeah, we have uh, Vicky Miko. Sorry, I forgot about... I'm not sure if Vicky's here, but she did send this uh, this uh, Memorial Day haiku, which will be published in um, Tesuroduro, July-August issue 2021. She also says, uh, hi, Tim and Megan. My husband was a Vietnam veteran. He didn't talk much about the war. He died in a car crash in 1990. These are the first poems I've written about him. I'm very happy they're going to be published. And um, here they are. This is uh, Memorial Day Haiku 2021. And uh, screen view here. I'll just read them for Vicky. A sniper adjusts his gun scope, a baby's cry. A sniper adjusts his gun scope. A baby's cry. Moment of silence. The stinging rain drips off the soldier's visor. Moment of silence. The stinging rain drips off the soldier's visor. His fatigue shirt hanging from the door frame, lengthening shadows. His fatigue shirt hanging from the door frame, lengthening shadows. Wrapped inside a box, inside a box, his dog tags. Wrapped inside a box, inside a box, his dog tags. And that was uh, Vicky Miko with four haiku. Um, just wonderful, wonderful haiku, Vicky. Thanks so much for sharing those with us today. A perfect way to end the show uh, the day before Memorial Day. Um, uh, before we go, let me just put this up on screen. Next week's guest, once again, is going to be Melissa Balmain. Uh, her newest book is Walking let me actually, I'll, I'll stand up for a second. Let me find this. You can see how squeaky my chair is. This is the other one, uh, that really interesting, too, that Melissa had. I'll put this up here. This is uh, her other book, The Witch Demands a Retraction, Fairy Tale Reboots for Adults. And so there's this, uh, really looking forward to this, too, and the idea of what she was doing here. Pinocchio Runs for Office is one of the poems. And so we'll be talking about these poems, too. This is... Uh, out from out from uh, humorous books and then she also has as I mentioned uh, Walking In on People a book of poems from Able Muse Press and that is uh, Melissa Balmain is going to be the guest and before I uh, forget the prompt for this week coming up will be uh, write a poem in which an inanimate object or concept is personified See Mirror by Sylvia Plath for a great example of a poem that makes excellent use of personification. So write a poem in which an inanimate object or concept is personified. That is your prompt for this week. Uh, We'll see what you come up with over the next course of the week, and uh, looking forward to those on the open lines at the end of next week's Rattlecast. Once again, next week's Rattlecast is number 96, featuring Melissa Balmain. Sunday, June 6th, we're going to do it at the new regular time, which is uh, 5 p.m. Eastern time. We'll do a half an hour of Poetry Spawn Live maybe uh, take one or two callers 
And then we'll uh, talk to Melissa for an hour. Then we'll have open lines for anything you would like to share. And that is Rattlecast number 96, Sunday, June 6th. Have a great week, and I will talk to you soon. Goodbye.